Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. The time for climate sophistry from Labor about how they can keep expanding coal and gas and yet somehow reduce emissions is over. People are seeing climate collapse happening in front of our eyes and cannot understand how the opening of new projects can be justified. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. As we're recording today, it is the final parliamentary sitting day for the year. What year is it, Adam? <laughs> it feels like it's 2023. I yes. hope it's 2023 no, sorry. still. Yes, yeah, no, no, that wasn't actually a trick question. I just had a brain fade. Anyway, my guest, you may, uh, you may have already cottoned on because of the voice. It's Adam Bant, leader of the uh, of the Greens. I'm delighted to have him with me. So uh, let's start there. It's the end of the parliamentary year. Are you relieved? I don't know that that's the word I'd use. It's kind of last few weeks have been a bit of a mixed bag, really. On the one hand, we feel pretty good about um, some of the things that we've done to put some roadblocks in the way of gas, get some water flowing for the Murray. That feels good. Mm. But it's been pretty demoralising watching the race to the bottom on refugees and migration yet again. Mm. Um, that mm. feels like a tape that's playing over and over again in mm. this place and we know how it pans out. Mm. So that was an unwelcome way of ending the year, I think. Mm. Yes. I'll get into the things that have been decided over the last couple of weeks and and obviously today on the day that we're recording. But I'm curious just up top, um, obviously it's been a long year and a gruelling year in terms of uh, legislation and politics and the dynamics that you've referred to. You've you know, told me over a number of years that you trust the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, that you have a, you know, you have a good relationship. I'm sure the listeners will be interested. How's the relationship panning out at the end of the year? Oh, we still have a professional, good working relationship, and I think that's important in this place. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the big thing to reflect on this year, I guess, is probably not how politicians are feeling, but that the public is doing it really tough. Mm -hmm. And... What concerns me watching the government is that they're just not understanding the scale of the crises and things are getting worse for people. There's things the government could be doing that would make a difference in people's lives and they're not doing them and people are watching that happen. Uh, and we're seeing in part as a result a growing disconnection of people from politics as they say, well, you're not fixing the issue, you're not fixing things to make my lives better, you're not taking on the big corporations, you're not tackling the climate crisis and instead you're having yet another argument about refugees. That's where I, I guess I would have the biggest political difference with the government at the moment. I mean, the relationship is still there, working relationship is still there. We've been able to get some good outcomes for the environment in the last couple of weeks, and mm -hmm. I think that's testament to that. But on cost of living crisis, housing crisis, Labor's not prepared to make the big decisions that are needed to tackle the scale of the crises. Let's put a pin in that because we'll come back to that. 
let's uh, let's deal with the events of, of recent weeks. It's sort of been interesting watching Sarah Hansen-Young and Tanya Plibersek kind of get these couple of deals done on the Murray-Darling, obviously, and on the nature repair bill. Um, I, I might just say, Adam, or forgive me, I know, uh, it looked like a couple of women getting the job done to me. Looked, you know, pretty sort of solid. Also, there's a, a deal on uh, the industrial relations package today, which I'm sure you'll be relieved about, that that's all moving. It's sort of, it, it, fe- it felt to me, and perhaps because listeners know and you know I've been, I was away for a few months at the start of the year and so maybe maybe I'm just in a sort of time leap or a catch-up mode. seemed to me when I came back initially from being away, things were pretty fractious in terms of how the agenda was moving through the parliament. But as we've sort of obviously, look, final sitting week, legislative deals are always done. Everything intensifies the program, always moves to the business end. But it is interesting to me that these big things have been able to be negotiated over the last couple of weeks. So what are your reflections on that? Like, obviously, you know, we have a progressive parliament in terms of numerically, we have a progressive parliament in both chambers. It seems to me at points in the year the government has kind of lost focus on on that, on the on the structural benefit of that. What do you make of the last few weeks? Well, I, I think you can wind the clock back a bit further like on the water and protections for the environment. Earlier on in the year, we laid out a pathway and we said we can pass laws to require the effect on our precious water supplies to be taken into account before the government looks at gas projects. We can do that. We'll support the government doing that. We'll support the government doing it as a standalone bill. We also said clearly, look, when it comes to the Murray-Darling, what we want to see is not the can kicked further down the road and another extension of time, but water flowing because if water doesn't flow and doesn't flow soon, then we know the effects that that's going to have on the river. And we laid that out quite clearly and offered a pathway forward and the work continued to happen, some of it public, some of it behind the scenes. And that's ultimately where we landed. And I think that's a really, that's a, it's a good place. And it's, uh, it is a testament to the work of Sarah Hansen Young that managed to lay out that pathway and for us to get there. But what we've also seen in the last couple of weeks is another set of deals that were done. We've seen Labor and Liberal vote together on citizenship laws, on being prepared to lock people up on the basis of crimes they might commit in the future rather than what they've done in the past. And we also saw Labor and Liberal vote together to give gas corporations an incentive to open new gas fields. So I think what's happening is that Labor's operating as a centre-right party and their centre of gravity is to go and do deals with the Liberals on a number of things. And Green's pressure is able to get results though and pull them the other way. And we've been clear from day one that, as you said, this is actually a parliament that could usher in a golden era of progressive reform if we wanted to. The numbers are there, by and large, to make some really progressive reforms happen and to tackle the big issues that we're facing. And again, the big concern is halfway through the term, we're seeing some progress when the Greens manage to pull and get it done. But we're also seeing a reluctance to think big and to tackle the big crises. And 
I think that is, that's really concerning and I think it's something that people are starting to pick up on. Mm. You're right to say that obviously Labor and the Coalition have teamed up on citizenship and on the on the sort of fallout of the, of the High Court decision uh, and you're also right about the resumption of toxic politics around these issues. We're well and truly in that territory. But we have also seen the Greens in the Senate team up with the Coalition on a couple of things over the last little bit, procedural motions and various things. Um, that's interesting to me. Will we see more of that in the new year? Well, look, we've, we've got things that we want to push uh, in this parliament, get the government to tackle the climate crisis seriously, cost of living crisis seriously and housing crisis seriously. And, you know, from time to time, the coalition may choose to vote a certain way, but I think people know where we stand and what we're fighting for. And we are seeing a situation where the Liberals are now becoming a far right party. And we see that sort of up in lights over the last couple of weeks. Labor's operating as a centre-right party, thinking that's their pathway to to govern the country, and we're the Social Democratic Party. And I think those values, however the configuration might come from time to time, I think those things are becoming clearer the the longer Parliament goes. More populist than far-right, the Liberals, surely, at this point. Well, you've got Peter Dutton running a massive misinformation and fear campaign based on a High Court decision, and... I remember when you know he came to Melbourne and said people were scared to go out because of African gangs. I mean, like there's like that goes beyond I think right wing populism and into trying to use or using race to try to win votes. And like that is thing that that I find deeply concerning and deeply troubling. And we've seen a resurgence of that over the last couple of weeks. Sadly, Labor's given in, um, but the uh, it's. I do think that looking at some of the stuff that Peter Dutton has said, Peter Dutton has made a a career out of punching down and of trying to divide people and use use that for his own electoral purposes. Um, let's think about your priorities for the next. Uh, 12 months and we'll get to housing and these other issues that you flagged because they're important. Um, Obviously, uh, the uh, EPBC Act reforms, we thought we might see them this year, but have been pushed off into the new year. You know, you've been signalling, Sarah's been signalling for, well, ages that a climate trigger is very important to the Greens. What do you think the prospects are of getting that done, that resolved, you know, I've got sort of in the back of my mind the the agreements over the last couple of weeks suggest that there's a there's a functional dialogue going on around some of these things, which you know listeners who care about these issues, I'm sure will be very grateful for. So what do you, what do you think the prospects are of getting a landing point on that? So a climate trigger means in our environment laws you have to consider whether approving a new project makes climate change worse and it might also a climate trigger in our environment laws might also say that projects that pollute above a certain amount can't get approved because uh, we know they're going to be they make climate change worse and we know from the government's own statements that climate change is the number one threat to Australia's environment and biodiversity uh, and let's not forget that Anthony Albanese introduced his own private member's bill to introduce, put a climate trigger mm-hmm. into our EPBC legislation, saying that it was a massive failing in Australia's environment laws, that they didn't require climate to be taken into account before approving new projects. So it comes back to that point. The numbers would be there for the government to take action on 
a climate trigger on coal and gas if they wanted to, but it's not the direction we see them heading. We've seen uh, five coal projects approved. We've seen gas projects approved. We've seen Northern Territory Labor put the foot on the accelerator to frack the Beetaloo. We've seen um, massive projects, Barossa, uh, Browse, Scarborough, all get the backing of Labor. We know gas is as dirty as coal. We know these are huge climate bombs, and yet they're giving every indication of supporting them. And so, so really it's going to come down to whether Labor's prepared to stop opening new coal and gas projects or wants to keep opening them. And all the evidence is Labor wants more coal and gas in the time of a climate crisis. I wonder, though, whether the realistic answer to this question will be, it's too soon to say, but, you know, whether, you know, Labor has not sounded thrilled necessarily with the idea of a climate trigger, notwithstanding the history that you accurately narrate, and obviously... You know, it's it's tricky electorally. So it's like what I'm what I'm trying to ascertain, I think, Adam, is like how open are you to something that is a <laughs> I was gonna say that something that is a climate trigger but doesn't look like one. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but do you know what I mean? It's sort of like there are there are many models or many, many different ways you could walk down this road to basically prioritize climate impacts in environmental assessments. There's a few different ways you could do it. Are you, are you flexible about the few different ways you could do it or is it our way or the highway? Well, I think if you look over the this first year and a half, what you're seeing is that the, the Greens have been fighting to stop Labor opening new coal and gas and we've been able to get them to stop opening some new coal and gas projects and we've put hurdles in the way of some others as a result of the hard cap on pollution that we got in the safeguard legislation. We estimate we stopped about half of the 116 new projects from being opened. But what's clear is Labor's hell-bent on opening the remaining coal and gas projects. And our job in Parliament is to stop Labor from opening those new coal and gas projects because they clearly want to. Uh, we've just delivered another blow with getting a water trigger in the Nature Repair Bill, which means that now, when the environment minister looks at big fracking projects, they can stop them mm. if they're going to affect our mm. water supplies. Right? So they, they, we've given Labor the power to stop new gas projects. So all the way along over the last year and a half, have we managed to get to our goal yet of stopping Labor completely opening coal and gas projects? No. Have we been able to stop them open and opening a number and make it harder for others to open? Yes. And so I, I think the parliament today shows that we're prepared to work with them to get a step along the way mm. of stopping opening new coal and gas projects. But, you know, there's there's a, like the planet's boiling and time is running out and we've saw, saw in your publication the about five tipping points that might potentially yeah. be about to be breached. And the time for climate sophistry from Labor about how they can keep expanding coal and gas and yet somehow reduce emissions is over. Like people, under, people are seeing climate collapse happening in front of our eyes and cannot understand how the opening of new projects can be justified. And so we're going to keep the pressure up. Really, the question for Labor is why they want to keep opening new projects. Because 
we sh- of course, we shouldn't be going further. We should be talking about how we're going to phase out existing ones like to, to meet the science. And we're asking for a really simple proposition, which is just don't make the problem worse. Mm. And we still haven't been able to get Labor to agree to that. Well, it sounds like from the answer that there is some flexibility, but obviously, you know, there's there's a simplicity about your message and obviously, you know, what you're saying aligns with the science. Um, Chris Bowen describes, you know, no new coal and gas as a as a slogan. It's not a slogan. It's 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 a statement of what the science says. But there, there's an interesting point I want to tease out a bit, Adam, with you. Um, people tell me, obviously, the energy transition basically will be won and lost in communities. You and I have been talking about this for ages in different forms. It, it will be won and lost on the ground. If, for example, uh, public pressure in uh, the Hunter stops those big offshore wind projects, for example, this is highly problematic. So social licence at this point is everything for this transition. It's the difference between it happening or not. So in that vein, people say to me, oh, look, the Greens message, no new fossil fuel projects. Yes, it does accord with the science. Yes, it is the direction we should be going in. But in, in communities like the Hunter or, you know, that sort of area of New South Wales, it sort of plays locally as the thin edge of the wedge, right? That those offshore wind projects are a signifier of a post-fossil fuels world and that then can activate opposition in communities and actually, ironically, make the transition harder. How conscious are you of that dynamic as you campaign on this issue? As I've said to you, I completely validate what you're saying because it accords with the science, but it's sort of like at the end of the day, if the transition doesn't happen, we're screwed. Yeah, two things. One is we were the only one, the Greens were the only ones at the last election campaigning on a job and wages guarantee for coal workers as we we make this change because we said really clearly coal and gas workers are not the ones driving the climate crisis, right? We have to move beyond... Uh, we owe coal and gas workers a debt of thanks. And we just now know things about coal and gas that we didn't know 100 years ago. Mm. So we've got to make a transition and we've got to do it in a way that supports and brings communities along. And we laid out a really comprehensive program and the government's picked up part of that with a transition authority that we've been mm. pushing for yeah. uh, for some time. Uh, we now need to provide financial support to communities so that people don't lose wages and incomes as we transition, so that people can see that there's a secure future there. Because if government is not honest about what's needed and does not provide the support, then that's what opens up fertile ground, mm. right? It's it's the failure of governments to be honest about what we need to do to tackle the climate crisis and how we can support workers that opens up the ground for the for the misinformation campaigns. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is most of the new coal and gas projects that Labor's opening up are for export. They're not for domestic use, yep. right? We're talking about, like Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuel pollution. We're up there with Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's not a terrific podium to be on in the top three up there, but that's where Australia is. And they're talking about opening up new projects for export. It's not about the domestic transition. And so I think, yes, the forces of coal and gas will always use whatever arguments are at their disposal to try and sow dissent. But the way to deal with it is for government to be honest and be upfront and support workers and communities. And for so long as Labor and Liberal 
keep lying to people that we can tackle the climate crisis while still opening up new coal and gas mines, they're creating a political rod for their own back because uh, pe- people can people see through that. And so uh, it's time for just some honesty and uh, some frank discussion about how do we say, well, workers and communities, you shouldn't lose any wages and incomes. You should have decent jobs. Let's make sure it happens. And and I feel that for so long as the government keeps saying, oh, we can open up new coal and gas mines and still meet climate targets, people are going to see through it. No one's going to believe it. Interesting, the Transition Authority. Have you have you had any conversations with Greg Combay or people from, you know, I think that's in the process of still being stood up. Have you engaged with them at all? No, not directly. I mean, we've made uh, made some suggestions to the government about uh, the time and over the discussions we've had about a transitional authority and what we'd like to see in it. We've um, we've brought forward draft legislation to Parliament to to establish one, um, and I mean, we're we're pleased to see that it exists. Yeah, I understand what you're saying about not lying to communities, and you're right. Like you can't lie to communities about what their future holds, but it's sort of like we have a we have a lot of alignment at the moment around around the transition. Like the big pools of capital in the world are focused on the transition. Like there's there's actually private capital to be able to do it, to to make it happen. It sort of feels like to me, watching this debate over such a long time, that the door's been shut for so long, and now the door appears to me to be partially open. <laughs> So there's a window of time, I reckon, over the next sort of 18 months to next couple of years to really accelerate here and really get it done and really make it inevitable and inexorable. But it sort of does require a degree of comity between progressive forces and also officials who are managing these things on the ground. Do you have the same view or do we have a different view? Look, if... The government wanted to bring legislation for a wage guarantee for coal and gas workers to assist in the transition or more funding for communities that the communities could control to um, to their transition, we'd be all for it. And there's a number of things that the government is doing on the renewables front and on the transition front that we support. And we've said we support it. But what concerns us is that they're, they're saying that domestically but then, on the other hand, opening up new coal and gas, like ex- massively expanding coal and gas by lighting the fuse on huge climate bombs. And Labor's gaslighting the country. They're seeking cover for this massive expansion of coal and gas by pointing to the domestic work. The domestic work, many elements of it we support. And if they wanted to go further and provide further to support communities, we're very happy to work with them. We've always said that. And you know, I've said, said this to you before, you know, my background coming here, was working as an industrial lawyer representing mm. unions. I've represented workers in coal-fired power stations across Victoria um, when they got smashed by privatisation. I've always been of the view that this is an area that, that we will lend our support for. Support for workers in these communities is absolutely vital mm. and um, we'll be there applauding anything the government does that actually delivers that support. But they got their foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time and Communities might look and say, well, if this is where we're going, why are you opening up these new coal and gas fields? Like the government's got to send a very clear message about the direction that we're going. And at the moment, they're not. And we're seeing that play out with the climate summit at the moment, the, the COP, where there's a refusal to just commit to the, the basic words that we need to phase out and um, a push instead for some kind of weasel words. And the more that they think they can be unclear about it, the more people will see through it. I mean, people... 
People are smart. People can see that if you say we want a domestic transition and then you open more coal and gas, they're entitled to scratch their heads and say, well, what are you actually wanting to do? Okay, let's get to um, housing and and other issues because obviously what the next 12 months looks like is more than the EPBC Act and uh, other priorities. So uh, obviously cost of living... The inflation numbers look slightly better, so hopefully this cycle is starting to unwind for people because you were quite right to say up the top that people are doing it tough. They really are, and they're very, you know, people are head down in their material pressures in their life. But obviously an open question whether or not the government comes back after Christmas with some more specific measures around cost of living. Uh, there's obviously the drumbeat around the stage three tax cuts continues unabated. Uh, the Treasurer sort of, I think, would like to do something, but I think uh, the Prime Minister thinks otherwise in terms of election promises. Housing's also a big issue, as you say, huge hot button issue in the community. So how do you see you know, those agendas playing out over the next sort of six to 12 months? We're going to have two big, big, areas of focus over the next 12 months. One is the climate crisis. We will be pushing to stop Labor opening new coal and gas. Second is the cost of living crisis, which is manifestation of a deeper inequality crisis in this country and requires some big changes to address it. Housing is a, is a really crystal clear example of that, where the single biggest line item in Labor's budget on housing is still tax concessions for people who've got multiple homes to go and buy their sixth, seventh and eighth Mm. or for wealthy people with capital gains tax. Mm. Increasingly, we now have a lot of people who have lived through a system where rents keep going up and up. There's no chance that they're going to buy their own home. And if they turn up to auctions, they're competing against someone who can get a tax break from the government no matter how high they push the price mm. up because they can write it off with negative gearing or capital gains it's, tax. Look, I, d- I totally these, agree. I, my, my point is yeah. that these people understand that there are deep structural inequities mm. in our system yep. and they see the government refusing to tackle that, okay? And what, what happens is uh, I think Labor does not grasp the scale of the crisis, of the housing crisis and also with the cost of living crisis. We, like, inflation is being driven in large part by corporate profiteering and they're putting up prices, they're making record profits and the government's doing nothing about it. And meanwhile, they're leaving it all up to the Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank says, oh, well, if all we've got is put up interest rates, then we'll put up interest rates. And everyday people get used as cannon fodder. I guess my general point is that there are deep causes of these crises. People understand there are deep causes of the cost of living crisis but the government is not tackling them. No, no, no. Look, I I agree, yeah, and I think there's a lot of uh, data that would support this point, that people are more conscious of uh, inequality and intergenerational inequality than they have been in the past. The Scanlon social cohesion data is very interesting on this, about young people feel completely disengaged from the Australian project because economically they're not part of it. Not contesting any of those things, but in terms of like the tax breaks, hang on a minute. Now, the Labor Party did take to two elections, uh, reforms to negative gearing and capital gains tax. They, they lost both elections. So it's sort of like what um, do you actually think, Adam, that there is a climate politically that could be leveraged 
in order to revisit some of these issues on housing policy. I think uh, I've said to listeners a couple of times over the last few months, I think some of the younger folks in the Liberal Party are actually thinking around this as well, because obviously there's a big realignment in the electorate between you know, renters and homeowners, and there's some very interesting dynamics which you are fully aware of. So do you think something shifted that if, you know, the Labor Party said, okay, we'll actually revive the policies that we took to 2016 and 2019 and lost elections on, that they would actually not lose an election? Yes, because of your polling that you published bears this out. People support a rent freeze. People support mortgage freeze. People support tackling these unfair tax breaks to property moguls and using that money to build public housing or build building a home people can afford. And there's a massive growing scepticism of so-called solutions that actually just see the problem get worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, let's look at this, um, the, the latest proposal around, you know, help to buy, which would be the hard to get scheme. It's going to be you know, easier to get a Willy Wonka golden ticket than one of these things. You shouldn't have to win a lottery to get an affordable home. Mm. And I think the government thinks these uh, schemes are worthwhile. I think a lot of people are looking at it going, well, that's not what's causing the crisis. Why don't you fix what's causing the crisis and take action on my rents? And because the the crisis, the, the cost of living and the housing crisis it's much, much worse than it even was just going into the last election, let alone five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And the pressures have just built and built and built on so many people. And housing, uh, cost of like groceries, uh, and meanwhile, the supermarkets make massive profits. These are things government could do something about. And so when government sits there and refuses to do, when Labor refuses to increase the tax on the big corporations or refuses to look at the tax breaks being given to the property moguls or refuses to freeze rents, people say, well, what are you doing? What's government for if you can't can't help fix the problems in my life by taking on powerful forces? And I think there is a real appetite and a great deal of public support for that. So, uh, Adam, you, you, you're saying that in the event that Labor wanted to revisit some of these policies that it suspects may have contributed to it losing the election. But also, interestingly, you know, I, I don't know if you detect this, but I have in conversations with uh, uh, some folks in the Liberal Party, I detect an appetite in the opposition, actually, to look at housing more seriously in terms of having a decent policy for the election. Uh, obviously, remains to be seen whether or not we get there. But in the event, either of the major parties, you know, went to the next election promising you know, big, big sort of shifts on tax policy or other incentives that you would regard as being, you know, fixing the problem, the Greens would back them in. Well, look, I believe that when I see it. I I think Labor and Liberal are choosing to back versions of the status quo and people want the government to make the big changes that will tackle the cost of living and housing crisis. Labor has the power to make the changes to tackle the housing crisis. They are choosing not to, and people are getting angry, um, and rightly so. The, I mean, people are sick of Band-Aid solutions, and uh, we have been pushing to, for reform of 
big tax concessions, but also you know, why we're spending $313 billion on stage three tax cuts when we could be spending that money building public housing or getting dental into Medicare. Uh, so there are some, like the situation is now worse than it than it was during the election campaign for people, than in any previous election campaigns it has been for people and people are now up for big changes. But obviously, you know, would require one of the major parties to advance changes in order to affect change. I mean, obviously, you know, you're you're articulating your uh, your policies, uh, but you know, you, you'll need one of you know one of your dancing partners, won't you, in order to make you know these really big changes. Well, I, I think they need to un- Labor needs to understand that it would be popular to uh, to wind back handouts to wealthy property moguls and instead fund a rent freeze, um, that could then get through Parliament um, and we would obviously support that. We'll keep pushing in the lead up to the election, but if it takes people to shift their votes at the election and the other parties to lose a few seats off the back of not tackling the housing crisis, then maybe that's what it will take for them to shift their position. Oh, I guess that's a, that's a massive dun-dun-dun for the new year. Adam, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for your time. Thank you. So thank you to Adam Bant. Thank you to you guys for listening and sharing and all the usual caper. Uh, this podcast is produced by uh, Miles Martignoni. He's the EP. Uh, they, we're sort of rollicking to the end of the year now, rollicking towards summer, but we've still a few episodes left. So we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.